I'd like to share a warning before we get into today's story. This episode talks about the abduction, assault, and murder of a little girl. By now, you know me well enough to know that I do not share the more difficult details about cases like this. Nonetheless, at times it is a difficult story to hear, and I wanted to make sure that you were fully aware before we get too deep into the episode. About an hour and a half north of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, there's a town that all but banned Halloween. In 1992, the town of Oil City, which sits west of the Allegheny National Forest, experienced a horrific tragedy a few days before Halloween. For many children in the United States, Halloween starts before October 31st. There are Halloween parades at school, at least in the younger grades and elementary or primary schools. If you're a Boy Scout or a Girl Scout, there are often Halloween events for your troops. Friends have Halloween parties. Dance and karate classes often have special days where children attend classes in their costumes. Churches and other organizations host events called Trunk or Treat, where instead of going door to door dressed as a princess or a goblin, children go car to car in a designated parking lot where participating families decorated the trunks of their car and those open crevices are filled with sugary treats. It's not uncommon anywhere in the United States to find children celebrating Halloween a few days early. Those events could be found 20 years ago, and you'll still find them today. On October 27, 1992, 11-year-old Shauna Howe had a Halloween event with her Girl Scout troop after school. Her costume was a gymnast. She wore a blue striped leotard and tights and satiny gloves that stretched up her arm. Shauna's troop meeting was expected to end sometime between 7.30 and 8 p.m. As a former Girl Scout leader, I can attest, we try to maintain reasonable hours for after-school meetings, especially on school nights. Shauna Howe didn't have a ride home, but the meeting wasn't far from her house. A friend walked with her for a short time, then they went their separate ways, and Shauna was never seen again by the people who loved her. Shauna's broken body was found three days later, the day before Halloween, below a bridge on a remote section of East Sandy Creek. A fisherman found Shauna Howe lying on the creek bed. What happened between the time Shauna left her troop meeting, dressed as a gymnast with a belly full of Halloween candy, and the discovery of her body was a mystery that plagued northwestern Pennsylvania for over a decade. Oil City is a small town the sort of place where everyone knows almost everyone else. And if you don't know them personally, you still know them. They use the same mechanic as you, or grab a slice of pizza at the same pizza joint on the corner. Your kids had the same teachers over the years. Oil City doesn't get many strangers. Did that mean there was a killer in town? Someone you might pass on the street or see standing in line behind you at the grocery store? How was it possible in this little town of 10,000 people, far removed from bigger cities like Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, a murderer walked among them? And what would it take to one day get justice for Shauna Howe and her family? I'm Dina Marie, your host on this Twisted Journey. Welcome to Twisted Philly. There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Philly Podcast. True crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome Welcome to to Twisted Twisted Philly.
Over 150 years ago, people flocked to a little town in the Allegheny River Valley to make their fortune in petroleum. Oil City was home to big-name companies like Pennzoil and Quaker State. I've heard Oil City, Pennsylvania referred to as a Rust Belt town, and that couldn't be farther from the truth. For one, Rust Belt typically refers to communities that suffered a depression as a result of steel mill closures. Oil City stands out because of their commitment to revitalization. They're a member of the Trail Town Program, an organization which helps rural communities through tourism, promoting bed and breakfasts, distilleries. There are some damn fine beers made in Pennsylvania and supporting independent businesses. Oil City has a beautiful Victorian historic district and even more beautiful views of the Allegheny River. It may be small, but it is not a Rust Belt community. Oil City, Pennsylvania is and was a community of hardworking people, enjoying their days with their families and their neighbors, and Halloween was no exception. Shauna Howe was 11 years old in 1992. She was a Girl Scout who, according to her mother, loved Halloween, and so did her mom. Lucy Howe, Shauna's mother, loved dressing her kids for Halloween, helping with costumes, decorating their home. Shauna and her siblings loved dressing up just as much as most kids their age. And that year, Shauna decided she wanted to be a gymnast. Maybe she was inspired by U.S. Olympian Shannon Miller, who took home bronze medals in the floor exercises and uneven bars and silver medals in the balance beam and individual all-around in the 1992 Summer Olympic Games. On October 27, 1992, Shauna Howe had a Girl Scout troop meeting after school, which included Halloween celebrations. As a former Girl Scout leader, I remember those days, the meetings that coincided with holidays. We took our troop to retirement communities where they sang in Santa hats around Christmas or to a local church before Thanksgiving where they prepared meals for the homeless. And we too hosted a Halloween party. Shauna's troop, well, they were no different. Their plans that evening, just a few days before Halloween, was to sing in costume at a retirement community, something fun for the residents and a way to teach the girls about community service. The evening's events wound down around 8 p.m. Lucy Howe, Shauna's mother, initially planned to pick up Shauna after the meeting at the First Free Methodist Church about a mile from their home. But she had to work until 10 p.m. that night, and in her own words during an interview with the A&E television series Cold Case, she said she forgot Shauna needed a ride. At a few minutes after 8 p.m. that night, an Oil City resident out walking on West First Street a road that runs parallel to the Allegheny River, populated mostly by residential neighborhoods, saw something that prompted him to call the police. Dan Payton saw Shauna Howe walking along West First Street. He didn't know her. He didn't know her name. He only saw a little girl in a leotard with a bag over her shoulder, walking alone along a dark street. Payton didn't know Shauna had blue eyes, or that her mom called her sassy. He didn't know she was a Girl Scout who loved Halloween, nor did he know the man who approached her from Reed Street. Payton saw a man approach the little girl. It seemed to Payton as if this tall, skinny man with facial hair and glasses said something to her. Then he grabbed her around the shoulders. It appeared the man put his hand over her mouth. He picked her up and ran around the corner. Dan Payton ran after the man and the little girl, but he couldn't catch them. A moment later, he saw a small, dark red sedan pull away. He didn't know whether that little girl was in the car, but she disappeared, so it seemed the only likely conclusion. Payton ran door to door until he found someone home because in Oil City in the early 90s, not many people had cell phones. 
I had one, but it was a ridiculous hulking thing that weighed so much, and I grew up in a family of technology early adopters. That wasn't necessarily the norm in more rural parts of Pennsylvania. The same is probably true in other parts of the country at that time. Dan Payton's only option was to find someone at home, tell them what he saw, and ask to use their phone. That was 8.05 p.m. The little girl in the blue leotard Dan Payton saw abducted was Shauna Howe. She was two blocks from her house. That scenario has come up before in tragic stories on Twisted Philly. Amy Willard was on the off-ramp of a highway less than 10 minutes from her house. Dolores Della Pena was across the street from her home in Philadelphia when she was taken and eventually murdered. Lisa and Devin Mandarak were in a shopping center not far from home. Lisa could have probably seen her car through a shop window had she been able to look outside. Ryan Kelly from Port Richmond was just down the street from his home when he was gunned down one Thanksgiving morning. We walk around with a false sense of security when we're close to home. I I know I do. Have you ever felt that way? Driving or walking and you feel a chill for no discernible reason. The old cliche, someone walked over your grave and it sends a shiver through your skin and your bones and you tell yourself everything will be all right when I get home. As you get closer, that feeling fades. The fear dissipates. You can see your porch light or a familiar tree in your front yard. Maybe it's your street sign. Shauna Howe was two blocks from home and in a split second, everyone's life Shauna's, her family, her friends, her school, and the entire community of Oil City changed. By 8.30 that night, Shauna's stepfather was a little worried. John Brown expected Shauna home before 8.30, so he called his wife, Shauna's mom, Lucy Howe, and asked, when was that meeting supposed to end? Because Shauna isn't home yet. Lucy was a little worried, but at first, not enough to call the police. Preteen girls, whether it's 2018 or 1992, get chatty. They tell stories. They talk about boys and movies and movie stars on which they have crushes. Maybe Shauna and her friends got a little sidetracked with little girl gossip and she was dawdling. That seemed like a logical explanation, but Shauna's stepfather decided to take a ride, find her on her way home, pick her up. He drove the route she likely would have walked between their home on West First Street and the church where the Girl Scout meeting was held. He drove side streets and intersections, and with each turn around the next corner, he became more concerned. There was no sign of Shauna. When Lucy Howe arrived home, she called the police. It was about 10 p.m. on Tuesday night when she got home from work, and the Oil City police responded quickly. They'd already been on high alert after the report they received two hours earlier about the abduction of a little girl. Oil City Police and the Pennsylvania State Police sprang into action. They set up roadblocks all over town. Close to 30 police officers were driving grid searches throughout Oil City, searching for a small sedan, dark red, maybe rust color, maybe a muted red primer, but it had Pennsylvania plates. By the next morning on Wednesday, October 28th, the search for Shauna Howe intensified. More state police joined their brothers and sisters in blue, and dozens of Oil City residents partnered with the police. Friends and family of Lucy Howe and her husband John Brown, neighbors, people they didn't know personally, but it didn't matter. A little girl was kidnapped in a town where crimes like this didn't happen. I know we talk about how no community is immune from crime or drugs or murder, 
But the most common crimes in Oil City were and still are property damage or theft. In the last 15 years, there have been three murders. That's it. Three. They've averaged less than a dozen assaults every year during that same time period. This is not a community that faced a high rate of violent crime. The police, the FBI, volunteers, they didn't just search the community of Oil City. There are densely wooded areas surrounding most small towns in that part of Pennsylvania. Areas where people camp and fish, these sections were actively searched as well. Two days after Shauna Howe disappeared, her uncle Keith Sybil found what was initially believed to be Shauna's blue leotard, part of her Halloween costume that she wore under her clothes when she left for school Tuesday morning, October 27th. The leotard was found along a hiking trail near East Sandy Creek. The only other evidence nearby was a crumpled candy wrapper. Law enforcement scoured that creek, the forest, the area of the bridge above the creek, but they uncovered nothing else that would provide a clue about Shauna Howe's whereabouts or her abductor. The leotard was sent to a forensic laboratory in Erie, Pennsylvania, where investigators uncovered DNA from seminal fluid found on the fabric. This was hard news. DNA is a good thing, right? It means you may be able to match someone to the DNA that was found on her clothing. But because it was seminal fluid, authorities believed there was a possibility Shauna Howe was sexually assaulted by her abductor. They had no idea if she was still alive, but they treated everything about Shauna's case as if she was still very much alive. They hoped to find her and bring her home safely to her family. Their quest to find Shauna Howe was quickly fulfilled, but not in the manner everyone hoped. The next morning, Thursday, October 30th, 1992, the body of Shauna Howe was found in an area of East Sandy Creek known as Coulter's Hole, not far from where her leotard was found the day before. Shauna was lying in a creek bed, wedged between rocks and a log about 30 feet below a railroad bridge. The coroner concluded Shauna Howe died of blunt force trauma to her chest and severe trauma to her head. In his report, he stated he believed Shauna Howe was thrown off the bridge and she was alive because she suffered injuries that were consistent with someone trying to stop themselves from falling, the way you might put out your hand to catch yourself. Shauna suffered a dislocated shoulder, fractured ribs, scratches, cuts on her knees, and a multitude of other injuries. There was very little comfort in the thought she'd only survived a short time after landing in the creek bed 30 feet below the trestle bridge. And she'd been sexually assaulted. On the bridge, police found Shauna's sneakers. They were placed neatly next to one another, but each shoe pointed in a different direction. In an interview with A&E Network Cold Case Team, Oil City Police Chief Warren, who was a patrolman at the time of Shauna's disappearance, said he thought Shauna Howe's killer was toying with them. They'd been all over that area of Coulter's Hall and Sandy Creek the day before. Had the killer been watching them? Did he, did he purposely go back to where he'd left her leotard to dump Shauna's body just a few hundred yards away? It was as if her killer were trying to tell the police he thought they were stupid and he was one step ahead of them. The next day was Halloween, but not for Oil City. Halloween was canceled. Children were barred from trick-or-treating, 
And even if the city hadn't made that decision, there were likely no parents anywhere in or near Oil City who would have let their kids out at night after what happened to Shauna Howe. Instead of trick-or-treating, the town held a silent candlelight vigil in Shauna's honor. They walked the route from the First Free Methodist Church, about six or seven blocks to the spot where Shauna was abducted at First and Reed Streets. Stranger abductions are uncommon. Over 450,000 children are reported missing each year. Fortunately, over 90% of them aren't actually abducted. But that doesn't make it any less scary when your child isn't where they're supposed to be. Out of all the children annually reported missing, over 1,400 are considered kidnappings. And almost 90% of those are abductions by family members. These statistics in no way minimize the fear or risk for an abducted child when they are taken by a family member. I share them because this is what fueled the police's belief Shauna Howe was known to her abductor. Their investigation initially revolved around Shauna's family. DNA samples were collected from her uncles, her stepfather, even her brother. Police investigated anyone who had any connection to Shauna, whether it was a close connection like a family member or perhaps a family friend or a teacher or even people that had a more distant connection. They followed what they believed were the right investigative tactics, and more often than not, the perpetrator would be found among that group of people. But no one connected to Shauna was a DNA match. They investigated Bill Crabtree, the man who found Shauna's body early Thursday morning on October 30th. He drove a small red car, and as we have heard so many times, there are killers who want to make him or herself out to be a hero, someone positioned as a compassionate friend or a concerned citizen. They tested Bill's DNA. They searched his car for Shauna's DNA, and there were no matches. Bill was exactly how he portrayed himself, a guy out fishing who unfortunately found the body of little Shauna Howe. Another man the police investigated was Eldred Walker, whom everyone in town called Ted. Ted Walker matched the description of the man seen grabbing Shauna off the street. He was tall and lanky. He had facial hair and wore glasses. He was a bit disheveled and unkempt looking. Ted is what I would call a creeper. He worked at an Oil City pizza shop, and according to residents and the police, he was fond of little girls. He always wanted to hug little girls that came into the shop. Shauna's mom, Lucy, even remarked that her girls would do whatever they could to avoid Ted. Oil City police thought this might be the break they needed. His behavior, his description, all of it seemed to make Ted a person of interest, if not a suspect. But his DNA ruled him out. Ted Walker wasn't their guy. According to Chief Warren, Oil City and Pennsylvania State Police tested over 100 DNA samples. And not one of them was a match for the DNA taken from Shauna Howe's leotard or her body. They had absolutely no idea who abducted and murdered this little girl or why. Over time, the leads began to dwindle, and eventually they dried up. About three months after Shauna Howe was murdered, police thought they may have had a new lead, 65 miles west over the state line in Warren, Ohio. In January 1993, a 12-year-old girl was raped by a man who was reported to have a similar appearance to the man who abducted Shauna although the perpetrator in Ohio was about six inches shorter than the description of the man in Oil City, Pennsylvania. 
The man in Ohio forced the little girl into his car. He threatened to kill her if she screamed or told anyone. And he said he'd done it before, killed another little girl, and it wouldn't bother him to do it again. While initially this seemed like a strong lead, it didn't pan out. There was no connection between this case and Shauna Howe's murder. A year passed, then two, then three. There was nothing. No new leads, no suspects. Shauna Howe's family stayed in close contact with the police who assured her mother Lucy they were doing everything they could to find Shauna's killer. But with each passing year, the likelihood of solving Shauna's murder became a daunting task, one filled with uncertainty and dead ends. In 1995, there was an attempted assault in Oil City. Two men, who were brothers, actually, Tim and Jim O'Brien, who were just 25 and 20 when Shauna Howe was killed, were arrested for attempting to abduct a woman near the intersection of West 1st and Reed Streets. Sound familiar? It's the same intersection where Shauna Howe was abducted three years earlier. The O'Brien brothers had a criminal record. They were also considered violent offenders, perhaps violent sexual offenders. Chief Warren said there wasn't a cop around who didn't know the O'Brien brothers. So why wouldn't one of them have been considered a person of interest in Shauna Howe's abduction and murder? Well, for one, they didn't fit the description of her abductor. And probably the most compelling reason was they were both in prison when Shauna was murdered. These two spent a lot of time in prison. And if they were in jail the night Shauna was kidnapped, they couldn't have been suspects. It was another possible lead that hit a brick wall. Shauna Howe's case sat for another three years until 1998, when Detective Richard Graham, who'd been a patrolman when Shauna was abducted, showed up at Lucy Howe's home and told her, I will solve this case. Graham wasn't assigned to cold cases. In fact, his job was quite the opposite. According to Graham, he had about 70 active cases he worked every day. And almost every day, he found time to review Shauna Howe's murder. Maybe a fresh set of eyes is all it would take. Someone who hadn't been so close to the investigation. Someone who might notice something that others inadvertently overlooked. Detective Graham brought Shauna's family hope. Could he be the man who would also bring them justice? Detective Graham didn't think he was better than any of the other detectives who'd worked her case before him. He was just different. He looked at things a little more slowly and methodically. And it was that approach that uncovered something in Shauna's case files that seemed to be a gap in the investigation. When Detective Graham reviewed crime scene and autopsy photos, he noticed what looked like a shoe print on Shauna's face. Yeah, that's, that's hard to talk about. As if everything that happened to Shauna wasn't hard enough, but an impression like that had to have been made by somebody holding her down with their foot. And with enough force to leave a mark that was discernible even after death. Detective Graham saw this in the photos, but when he reviewed the autopsy report, there was no mention of it by the coroner. Graham decided to consult outside forensic experts, more fresh eyes, more fresh perspectives. When they reviewed the case files, including those photographs, Graham felt displayed a key piece of evidence. These forensic specialists believe Shauna's abduction and murderer were committed by not one suspect, but two and possibly three. It would have been difficult for someone to grab Shauna Howe off the street by himself, get her in a car, 
then get himself into the car without risking Shauna jumping out. They believe she was kept alive for two days before she was found on the creek bed at Coulter's Hole, and that probably took more than one person to hold her captive and then transport her between the abduction site, where she was held captive, and eventually where she was left to die. It took four more years for Detective Graham to positively identify not only suspects, but culprits in Shauna Howe's abduction and murder. And their names were already on police radar. Ted Walker, Tim O'Brien, and Jim O'Brien. I know, the O'Briens were in jail when Shauna was taken, but they weren't. Detective Graham contacted police connected to the O'Brien brothers' arrests and convictions for other crimes in 1992. And although they should have been in jail, they were actually out on bail. They weren't behind bars on October 27th. And if there were any people in Oil City, Pennsylvania, capable of committing a horrific crime like what was done to Shauna, it was the O'Brien brothers. Detective Graham pieced together what he could with evidence. The DNA on Shauna's leotard, as well as DNA collected from her body, was a match for Jim O'Brien. Jim's was the only DNA present, but he did not do this alone. Ted Walker had been questioned multiple times by Oil City Police in the months and years following Shauna's murder. He fit the abductor's description. He was seen driving a car that fit the description of the car Dan Payton saw immediately after someone grabbed Shauna off the street. He was friends with Tim and Jim O'Brien. It was time to talk with him again. Walker lied to police off and on for over 10 years, repeatedly presenting himself as someone who knew nothing about Shauna Howe's murder. Sometimes he said he didn't even know who she was, although he often saw Shauna when her family came into the pizza shop where he worked in Oil City. It was two more years before Ted Walker was arrested for his role in the abduction and murder of Shauna Howe. In July 2004, during an interview with Pennsylvania State Trooper Vernon Brown, Ted Walker claimed Tim and Jim O'Brien wanted to snatch a local kid as a prank. Their plan was to grab one of Walker's children's friends, hold him for maybe 20 or 30 minutes, just long enough for the police to be notified someone was missing and start searching then dropped the kid off safe and sound at his own home. That's how the plan started, and it changed quickly. Their initial intention was to carry out this horrible scheme on Halloween, play a little with the fear of the boogeyman or the killers you see in movies about Halloween, but not actually hurt anyone. Soon they decided it didn't have to be a friend of Ted Walker's children. It could be anyone, really, a boy or a girl, maybe not even a kid. Just grab someone on Halloween, send the cops all over town in a panic, and then let their abductee go. On what fucking planet is this a good idea? This is not a prank. A Halloween prank is throwing toilet paper up into someone's trees. Abducting a child is terrorizing that child and their family and the community. It's wasting precious time and manpower among the police force, which could have a detrimental effect if there were other crimes, real crimes, committed at the same time. Then Halloween just wasn't soon enough. According to what Ted Walker told Trooper Brown, the O'Brien brothers caught up with Walker on Tuesday night, October 27th, 
They said, we're going to snatch someone now. We need you to grab someone and bring them to us. And that's what he did. The O'Briens parked near West First and Reed Street. They sat in a little red car and Ted parked a little further down the block. Ted Walker started walking. He saw Shanna Howe, whom he knew well enough to know she was a Girl Scout, and he asked her if she was selling cookies. Then he grabbed her around the shoulders and carried her down the block to where Tim and Jim O'Brien were parked. One of the brothers got out of the car, grabbed Shauna from Tim, held her in the back seat while the other drove off. Where did they go? They went to Ted Walker's house. Walker claimed at this point he thought it was still a prank. He believed the O'Brien brothers were using his house to hold Shauna for just a little while, just long enough to get the police running around for what they thought was no good reason. And then the O'Briens would let her go, as if that is okay, as if that in any way minimized his role in all of this. Soon after arriving at Ted Walker's house, Tim and Jim O'Brien carried Shauna Howe upstairs to the second floor. Then Ted heard her scream. Shauna yelled, get off me, leave me alone. In one report, Walker told police he made the O'Briens leave. He said he told them he didn't want them in his house hurting that little girl. They couldn't keep her there, so they left with Shauna. In another telling, Walker claimed he left the house because he didn't want to know what the O'Briens were doing to Shauna. And when he came back a few hours later, the three of them were gone. Ted Walker could have said no. He could have told Tim and Jim O'Brien he wanted no part of this plan. He could have called the police to inform them what the O'Briens were planning on doing. He could have called the police after he abducted Shauna. He could have called them when he knew what they did to Shauna on the second floor of his home. After her murder, he could have told the police what happened and who did it, and he did none of these things. When the police asked him why he didn't come forward, why he'd lied every time he'd been questioned, Walker used his children as an excuse. He said he was afraid the O'Brien brothers would hurt his kids like they'd hurt Shauna, and he was afraid he'd lose his kids if the police found out his role in Shauna Howe's abduction. This little girl spent the last 48 hours of her life in fear and in pain. She was cold and alone. They believe she was most likely kept in the trunk of the O'Brien's car before they tossed her off a bridge like a sack of garbage because Walker wouldn't open his mouth and that guts me. When I think of what Lucy Howe endured for over 10 years waiting to find out who hurt her little girl, who murdered her little girl, realizing that someone knew exactly what happened and did nothing for a fucking decade, I cannot imagine the pain that puts on a family. It's too heavy to consider for very long. Ted Walker was charged with kidnapping and third-degree murder. The DA made a deal with Walker. Testify against the O'Briens, and you'll get 40 years instead of life in prison. That particular deal was a point of contention during the trial against Tim and Jim O'Brien, who were tried together. Jim O'Brien's defense attorney argued it was Ted Walker who assaulted and killed Shauna Howe. He cited the myriad of ways Walker's story changed over the last 12 years. Walker was a liar who couldn't be trusted. So how could the court trust anything he said about the O'Briens? There was just one problem with that defense. It was Jim O'Brien's DNA that was recovered from Shauna's clothing and her body. Tim O'Brien's attorney tried to undermine the testimony of another witness for the prosecution, 
a man named Ryan Heath, who was a cellmate of Tim O'Brien's in 2001. Remember, I said these guys spent a lot of fucking time in jail. At the time of their arrest for the abduction, rape, and murder of Shauna Howe, Tim O'Brien was serving time for sexual assault, and his brother Jim was in jail for that attempted abduction in 1995. Ryan Heath claimed Tim O'Brien told him that he and his brother kept Shauna in the trunk of their car until they figured out how to get rid of her. They knew they couldn't let her live, they'd spent too much time with her, she knew their connection to Ted Walker, she'd more than seen their faces. So they dumped her over the railroad bridge. Tim O'Brien's attorney tried to convince the jury they shouldn't believe the testimony of a criminal, which is funny when he expected them to believe what he said about his client, Tim O'Brien, who was also a criminal. District Attorney Marie Vian had no trouble putting to rest both the defense attorney's ridiculous claims. Ryan Heath may have been in prison, but he received no special treatment for his testimony, no privileges, no reduction in sentence. He came forward before they had DNA proof linking Jim O'Brien to Shauna's rape and murder. She also acknowledged that Tim Walker's details had changed over the years, but the core of his testimony, what happened on the night of October 27th in 1992, and who did what, never changed. Ultimately, the jury felt the same way. In October 2005, the O'Briens were convicted of second and third degree murder, involuntary deviate sexual intercourse, kidnapping, and conspiracy. They were sentenced to life in prison, plus a consecutive 10 to 20 years incarceration for involuntary deviate sexual intercourse, and five to 10 consecutive years for conspiracy. These guys will never set foot outside of prison. In March 2010, Tim O'Brien submitted an appeal which was denied by the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court. In July 2011, he filed for post-conviction relief, citing ineffective counsel, ineffective assistance in providing partial alibi testimony. Oh, sorry, guys, I forgot to mention, Tim O'Brien claimed a journal entry on his brother's calendar with the letters B-A-P-R-S was a reminder for a baptism they were supposed to attend that night on a Tuesday at 8 p.m. Lastly, he cited ineffective assistance by his attorney for failing to give notice of the intent to impeach a state's witness for a prior criminal record, meaning his former cellmate, Ryan Heath. The state superior court found his arguments to be without merit and dismissed his request for post-conviction relief on July 22, 2013. As for Halloween in Oil City, well, it came back, but it wasn't a nighttime celebration. Halloween had to be celebrated during daylight, between 2 and 4 p.m. No more trick-or-treating at night by the glow of jack-o'-lanterns and orange lights. That spooky feeling you get with Halloween was gone, because Oil City experienced real terror. Why would anyone want something that elicits fear, even if it's make-believe? Even after Ted Walker and the O'Brien brothers were incarcerated in 2005, Oil City upheld their ban on trick-or-treating after dark. That is, until 2008, when one little girl fought to bring back nighttime trick-or-treating in Oil City. A fifth grader named Elizabeth Ross attended a city council meeting. She had a petition with 175 signatures from community members, and she had a speech outlining her reasons to reinstate nighttime trick-or-treating. 
According to Elizabeth, she had three key points. First, neither she nor her sister had ever been able to trick-or-treat in their own community. Their parents drove them to neighboring towns where trick-or-treating was permitted after dark, and they really wanted to trick-or-treat in their own neighborhood. She told the city council there were hardly any people home during the day. Sure, the school could let kids out at 2 p.m. to go trick-or-treating, but that didn't mean all parents could leave work, and many doors were closed to trick-or-treaters in Oil City because no one was home at 2 in the afternoon. Lastly, Elizabeth mentioned the glow I talked about. The glow of a carved pumpkin with a candle inside, bright, glittering Halloween decorations, and porch lights in the darkness, letting kids know that house was open for business. And it worked. Elizabeth knew why Halloween was canceled in 1992. She understood why the town was reluctant to let children out after dark. In an interview with NPR in 2008 between Elizabeth and her mother, she said she learned that no kids should ever go out alone by themselves. They should always take a parent or guardian with them. In 2008, Oil City officially reinstated trick-or-treating after dark. If you're listening outside of the United States, you may not celebrate Halloween with as much fanfare as we do here. My neighborhood is a great trick-or-treat spot. It has lots of houses in a small space. You can really hit the jackpot here. My daughter and I used to dress in tandem for Halloween. We were Nerissa and Giselle from the Disney film Enchanted, Rizzo and Sandra D from Greece, Alice and the Red Queen, Elphaba and Galinda from Wicked, Dorothy and the Wicked Witch from The Wizard of Oz, and no, that is not the same as Elphaba and Galinda. We were a pirate princess and Captain Jack Sparrow because I have no problem dressing up as a man. Our last tandem costume was Effie Trinket and Katniss Everdeen from The Hunger Games. The following year, she and her best friend at that time were Thing 1 and Thing 2. At least I got to make their costumes and do a little special effects makeup on their faces. Then it became, Mom, just paint my face like a tiger and pick me up some cat ears and a tail. And I was broken hearted. I've watched so many of the little ones in our neighborhood grow up. Many have stopped trick-or-treating, but there are still a few that come around with a pillowcase hoping for full-sized candy bars. I'm a big Halloween fan, probably because it gives me an excuse to go out in public wearing special effects makeup. For some people, Halloween is the one day each year where you can be as big a freak as you want without anyone passing judgment on you. Wouldn't it be nice if every day were like that? If you and yours are heading out trick-or-treating this year, please be safe. Carry glow sticks and a flashlight. Don't let the kids eat any candy before you inspect it. I know, it's no fun for the kids waiting, but I grew up when we had people putting razor blades and sewing needles in Kit Kats. And be kind. Be kind to the kids who seem nervous or apprehensive. Be kind to the kids that don't say thank you. Be kind to the kids who take a giant fistful of candy. And be kind to the kids who you think are too damn old to trick or treat. Welcome all of them because they all have a reason to knock on your door. If you are so inclined, I'd like to ask you to send up a thought or a prayer, whatever you're most comfortable doing, for Shauna Howe and her family. I imagine this must be a very difficult time of year for all of them and for the residents of Oil City. 
Ten years ago, they gave their children a gift. The gift of trick-or-treating again at night, in the dark, when you can't see the boogeyman lurking behind a tree. That must have been one hell of a hurdle for them to overcome. I'd like to thank Emmy Sarah for the music you heard in this and almost every episode of Twisted Philly. You can find out more about Emmy on her website at emmysarah.com, and you can download her music on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. That's it from me. Ciao for now, Twisters.